from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. There's been a book sitting on my shelf for a few years, Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich, by a German award-winning novelist and screenwriter and journalist named Norman Oler. It also happens to be the book which I think more listeners of Psychoactive have suggested I do an episode on than any other. So we got in touch with Norman Oler, who lives in Berlin, and asked him if he'd come on and talk about a book, and so we can learn more about the remarkable story and history of the use of stimulants, speed, and other drugs by the German military and other militaries, and also about Hitler and his personal use of these drugs. So, Norman, thank you ever so much for joining me on Psychoactive. 
Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very happy to talk about this subject. So Norman, let's just get started. I mean, before we launch into what's going to happen during World War II, um, with the battle between the Axis and the Allies, between Germany and its allies, and, the, and Britain and the UK, and then eventually the Soviet Union, but let's set the context for this. And there's a sense of, you know, Weimar Germany, of the period of Germany before Hitler comes to power in 1933, as being a fairly decadent period, uh, you know, in Berlin. So if you could just set the stage for us about the nature of drug use before Hitler comes to power and how the Nazis approach that. Apparently, the called Weimar Republic, which started in 1918 after Germany lost the First World War and ended in 1933 when the Nazis took power. So it lasted for about 15 years. During that period, Apparently, there was quite a liberal approach to the usage of drugs. There were drug laws in place, but they were not enforced. There was no drug police in Germany. And Berlin became famous for basically its drug culture. It was very cheap to acquire drugs. You could get a lot of stuff in the pharmacies, but there was also a huge black market. There was a big drug tourism um, coming into place, kind of like now, uh, people from all over the world travel to Berlin to go to the famous clubs and take drugs. It was kind of similar in the 20s. This also had to do with the lost war. Um, many German men were addicted to morphine. They got morphine legally from the state, and then they became addicted to it. And then they used heroin, for example, which was still a legal product uh, manufactured by the company Bayer which also manufactures still today aspirin. So heroin and aspirin were their main you know, success products. So the Weimar Republic was, I guess, a, a free and liberal and a bit of a crazy time. And I imagine cocaine plays quite a role in those days as well, right? It's the ultimate party drug. It's popular, widely available, right? Yeah, apparently cocaine was quite uh, en vogue at the time. You could buy it in restaurants from the waiters. Uh, there were movies made about cocaine. And cocaine wasn't so ostracized as it is, uh, I think, rightly so today. But at mm -hmm. the time, it was considered to be like a, like a high society drug. Also, Sigmund Freud developed psychoanalysis on cocaine. So using cocaine was kind of chic and maybe it would expand your mind, which I think it doesn't but at, you know cocaine mm -hmm. was everywhere i suppose in berlin mm -hmm. in certain circles and the nazis hated this liberal approach to drugs because um they propagated a clean germany uh, a germany without any poisons and this was for them a, a holistic approach i mean the poisons could be racial it could be you know uh, races that they thought were poisonous, that these could be substances that they thought were poisonous. So um, an anti-drug policy was beginning in, in, uh, in an important part of the whole Nazi approach uh, to policy making. And some of this comes th from the top in a way, right? I mean, Hitler himself is a teetotaler, right? Doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, he's vegetarian. So part of his whole thing, I mean, on the one hand, there's his, you know, infamous and horrific anti-Semitism and Mein Kampf and all of this. But there's another part of him, which is this kind of body purist, which seems to, you know, permeate some of the Nazi way of thinking about this, right? Well, Nazi ideology was heavily into physical fitness. 
Um, that's why it was also an anti-alcohol movement in a way, even though a lot of Nazis were drinking and never stopped drinking. But Hitler portrayed himself as this health freak in a way that would not put any poisons into his body and he expanded this view into the idea of the body of a people so the whole german people basically have one body so you are not free to you know poison your own body because your body is part of a bigger body everyone is supposed to this was called the health dictatorship everyone's supposed to live healthily otherwise you'd endanger others Ideas which actually are still popular today in, in, in completely different scenarios, but the Nazis were very much into this uh, authoritarian approach to you know health and what to do to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. And Hitler was the shining example, and he really was not using any toxins until you know much later. So in the beginning, he was also the shining example in his own movement because his own movement were basically all you know. When they first marched in Munich in 1923 to take over power, 10 years before they managed to do so in the whole of Germany, they were all drunk. They were basically drinking the whole night in a Bavarian beer horn in the morning. Uh, they thought, now we're going to take over power, which miserably failed. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was one of the reasons why Hitler said, from now on, also there will be no more drinking in our reins and obviously no, no other drugs. We have to be always you know, clear and clean and fit. Mm -hmm. I mean, to some extent, the anti-alcohol thing, there was this broader sort of temperance movement in the Western world where the U.S. and parts of Scandinavia, Russia, Canada actually went to some measure of alcohol prohibition and a broader temperance movement. So Germany was not unique in this regard or the Nazis or Hitler even. I mean, the anti-alcohol thing was somewhat you know, consistent. But what was more distinctive right, about Hitler was that in his focus on targeting the Jews and blaming the Jews for everything, right? he equated, I think this is in your book, he equated Jews with pathogens and bacteria and poison. So, and they became equated in some form with bad drugs, right? And then when the persecution begins after Hitler becomes to power in 33, it's Jews, it's gypsies, what are now called Roma, and it's drug users, and I guess homosexuals and others who become part of the sort of broader demonized classes who are brain blamed for bringing down the, bringing down the country. Well, that's exactly true. Um... Yeah, I have nothing to add, actually. I mean, okay, you just put it very, very well. Well, then let me shift to the other theme that's going on, right? So you have this kind of drug culture in Weimar Germany, and then Hitler coming to power in '33, and a very strong anti-drug thing mixed in with anti-Semitism and anti-other quote-unquote deviant minorities. But you also have Germany, which is this sort of industrial and also chemical powerhouse, right? You have some of the leading pharmaceutical firms in the world, right? I think uh, Merck, which we all know about today, and Bayer, which you mentioned before, but also Temmler and Beringer. And Germany is the workshop of the world, you write in your book. You know, made in Germany is a guarantee of quality, especially for drugs. So tell us a little more about that pioneering role and global influence of the German pharmaceutical industry in the late 19th and into the 20th century. Well, yeah, as you just said, this started already in the 19th century. Germany was um, the biggest industry in Europe already, but it didn't have any colonies unlike France or Britain. And um, the need to consume stimulants 
which, for example, drove the British Empire into uh, importing tea, just to have this tea time at around 4 or 5 p.m., which gives you like another boost or kick. Germany had to you know, look for uh, other ways to find stimulants. So what they did was to produce them pharmaceutically, and uh, the late 19th century became very good time for German ph pharmaceutical industries because you didn't need a lot of raw materials. You basically needed brain power to develop uh, medicines. So as mentioned earlier, heroin and aspirin were actually discovered within the same company and within the time span of 10 days by the same chemist. So there was a lot of innovation going on in the pharmaceutical industry in Germany. Right, so it's 1898, and Bayer puts out aspirin for a headache and heroin consumed orally in a pill form as a cough suppressant, right? So they're pioneering in that area. Yeah, they were quite confident that heroin would be a big seller, which it was in the beginning until people understood that it actually forms an addiction. In the beginning, they weren't even concerned with this. They even suggested to give heroin to babies who cannot sleep. And you know, it makes sense because heroin apparently makes you, you know, relaxed and makes you fall asleep. But it was a bit of a problem for the Nazis because on the one hand, they didn't want people to use those drugs anymore. On the other hand, they wanted to boost the German pharmaceutical industry because they were dependent on a working German economy. And we can see how they solved this dilemma, for example, with the Temmler company in Berlin, because they manufactured uh, methamphetamine for the first time in 1936, came onto the market in 1938. And the Nazis simply said that this is not a drug, it's, it was totally illegal. And so um, Temmler could um, you know, make a huge profit from it. Yeah, I think you wrote there that they actually launched a major advertising campaign based upon Coca-Cola's advertising campaign. Well, they thought that they had developed something similar to Coca-Cola, but better. I mean, the taste, you know, there's no taste to it. It's just a pill, but um, it had a very refreshing effect uh, on the consumers back in the days. And people back then didn't know, you know, they like we drink coffee all the time or tea or very refined you know teas and and we basically stimulate ourselves in the western societies all the time but in germany in the 30s this was a new thing so there was suddenly this pill on the market which you took it was pure methamphetamine it was manufactured by a berlin company so there was was a quality product it was not a high dosage it was three milligrams but still you could feel like you take a pill and you feel like a slow so you feel it coming on slowly, and then you have like a boost. You're more talkative, which was good at the time because you were, you know, Germany was just a capitalist country, so people were competing against each other. Companies were competing with each other. So having this little booster of methamphetamine was considered to be very beneficial. And other countries didn't have this, so the German economy used the methamphetamine to um, produce more and be ahead in, in the race of the nations in Europe in the late 30s. 
Well, you also write about how, you know, I mean, first, when the campaign was launched by the manufacturer, Temmler, they also directed the campaign at MDs and the doctors, suggesting they try it themselves, not unlike you saw happen with OxyContin and Purdue Pharma and other pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. 20-odd years ago. And I think they promoted it, which is oftentimes the case with any new drug, as both a substitute for other things like alcohol, cocaine, and even opioids, and as a cure for addiction to those substances, right? And there was a broader kind of sexual connotation that helps with sex and energy and performance and work and, and all this mm. sort of stuff. I mean, I guess in a way, you know, no society or almost no society is going to be really drug-free, free of all psychoactive drugs. So almost every society finds ways that are the forbidden ones and then the ones which are the sanctioned ones, the ones which are authorized or permitted. And for Germany, it sounds like the methamphetamine, which I think marketed as pervitin, becomes mm. that drug in the late 1930s. Yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, it became very interesting even to the regime when um, someone who worked for the German army, a professor called Ranke, realized that it decreases your need to sleep. And then he, he, he started... Um, started testing it on medical officers to find out whether this drug might actually be useful for the German army. And then methamphetamine, which before was making the German civilian s civil society more productive, uh, suddenly became a drug that uh, the military took an interest in. Mm-hmm. So you describe in your book, you know, this fellow Otto Rank, who's the head of the Research Institute of Defense Physiology, and his introducing it while at the same time using it and at the same time having certain qualms. And then you sort of present his antagonist, uh, Leo Conti, the, the health fear of the Reich. Right. Who has, you know, doesn't not formal authority over the military, but he's got the authority to regulate or ban drugs for the broader society. So talk about some of that conflict and tensions within the military between these guys and more broadly about whether or not to allow the use of methamphetamine among the soldiers. Well, in 1938, no one thought that pervitin could have any side effects or that there were any problems connected with pervitin. So also Ranke had no, no, didn't have any second thoughts. He just read studies that decreases the need to sleep. And then he made um, uh, tests with medical officers and he realized, yes, they can stay awake for longer periods. So he got in touch with the Surgeon General, the Nazi Surgeon General, suggesting that it should be a regular drug for the for the German military, which it became uh, in April 1940, just before Germany attacked France. It was integrated uh, and dished out to all this, the medical officers. They received a so-called stimulant decree, which uh, Ranke wrote, which described how many pills each soldier should take in a battle situation. And um, German military made good experiences with this drug. The German soldiers were very successful in, this, in these uh, early campaigns uh, in the West and before that also in Poland, where also methamphetamine was already used, but not officially yet. 
So for our listeners, and many of them may not know the history of World War II all that well, the invasion of Poland in late 1939 precipitates the beginning of World War II. I mean, the U.S. doesn't enter for a couple more years until late 41 when we're attacked by the Japanese, but that's when Britain and France and the others enter. And you're saying that in that invasion of Poland by the Germans in late 39, you're already seeing pervitin, methamphetamine, being used widely, but not with the official or specified encouragement of the senior military leadership. Is that right? Well, Ranke wanted it to be an official drug already in August 1939, one month before the attack on Poland, but his supervisor basically didn't understand what he was talking about, a drug mm -hmm. that's supposed to help on the battlefield. That was very new and advanced thinking. It wasn't understood yet, but because pervitin was quite popular, was quite known in Germany, many soldiers just carried it in their pockets. And when they were in the field in Poland, there's you know there's many letters where they write back even to their parents saying, "Send me more pervitin. I need it for my job here in the military." So Ranke also you know looked at these he looked at how how did it work in poland and he, he found out that it worked very well for the german army and so what you're suggesting also if young soldiers are writing home dear mom and dad can you send me more of this methamphetamine at that point between 1939-1940-41 it was very culturally accepted right i mean it was nobody saw much of a problem with it no no one saw a problem with it it was basically like coca-cola so why why would there be a problem with it? You just go to the shop, which in that case was a drugstore, and you buy pervitin, you take it, and you're happy and in a better mood. And if you're a soldier, you can fight better because you, you have less fear when you're on methamphetamine. You're not afraid to go into dangerous situations. You have more, you know, zest somehow or more, you know, enthusiasm to fight other people, which is, you know not a normal thing you know to to fight other people so it's better to be on drugs i suppose or at least on methamphetamine so ranke saw this and he read all these reports he asked uh, a lot of officers to send him reports how was methamphetamine used in the campaign against poland did it work did it increase the morale of the troops and mostly the feedback was positive so he's he again went to his supervisor before the french campaign and said we have to make this drug official because then we can use it more efficient and uh, this was done so when germany attacked france uh, on may 10th 1940 uh, 35 million dosages of methamphetamine were given out and it enabled the german soldiers to fulfill what hitler had ordered uh, of the german troops which was to advance very fast advance in a speedy way that's why it was called the blitzkrieg the speedy war and uh, reached the french border city of sedan within three days and three nights without stopping, without sleeping. So this was a new tactic to you know, basically not sleep. This was, no one had ever, no army in the world had ever done this to, to march for three days and three nights because no human being can stay awake for three days and three nights without an artificial stimulant, but with methamphetamine is actually possible. So the German army used this you know, longer time window of being able to be active to overrun the enemies, which um, had to go to sleep, actually. 
I mean, obviously, when Reinke gets interested in this, his initial interest, right, is to find the drug that counters fatigue and exhaustion, which is seen as the number one enemy of sort of military efficiency, both in the air and on the ground, tank pilots, infantry, you know, fighter pilots, bombers, you name it. And so that's the focus. And presumably until that point, soldiers had relied on coffee right? And caffeine. I don't know if they had caffeine pills back then. They had relied. Nicotine is a bit of a stimulant. So obviously soldiers had used other stimulants. It's just that none of them seemed to compare to methamphetamine. Well, using stimulants is as old as, you know, fighting a war. But as you said, there was never an, an effective and strong drug like methamphetamine. You just cannot compare smoking a cigarette or drinking alcohol to taking a high dosage of methamphetamine, which releases all of your dopamine in the brain immediately. And you're just totally wired for a few hours. So this was a new type of stimulant, a much, much more potent type of stimulant, which then gave the Germans an edge in these speedy campaigns. Yeah. You, you say in the book, and I apologize for my pronunciation of the German, which I don't know, but that the German army, the Wehrmacht, was thus the first army in the world to rely on a chemical drug, and that the Germans gained more territory in 100 hours during that blitzkrieg you know, west toward the Atlantic Ocean than they had in four years of World War One. So it was really, I mean, it sounds like that, that campaign, that short campaign lasting, what, some weeks or a month, you know, just had this absolutely stunning impact. And in terms of having the Germans feel, my God, we are on top of the world, nobody can stop us, and of creating a sense of fear and intimidation among the French and the British and the Belgians and everybody else going, my God, what has happened? We had more troops, we had more tanks, we had more planes, and now all of a sudden France is signing its surrender and Belgium is surrender, and the Brits are fleeing back home. And you're basically the claim you make, and I think which professional historians have, you know, generally backed you up on this, you know, that you make a powerful case that this could not have been possible without the use of methamphetamine. Well, it's important to understand that simply feeding soldiers methamphetamine doesn't automatically turn them into victorious soldiers. Um, the strategy that the Germans had, which was to go through the Ardennes Mountains and not attack from the north of Belgium, where Germany, for example, had attacked in World War One. This was actually decisive because that enabled the Germans to be faster in France than the defending French and Belgian armies, which were, you know, expecting the Germans to attack in Belgium. But this fast move, this thrust through the Ardennes Mountains was only possible because of methamphetamine. So it was the combination of the strategy with the drug that was so successful. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, much of the credit's given, I guess, to two particular generals, Guderian, and then probably the one German general that many Americans have heard of, Rommel. I mean, they just drive ahead nonstop. They and their troops driven, to some extent, by methamphetamine. Hitler himself, back home in Berlin, is stunned by all of this. Guderian and Rommel suggest that the tanks would be the, the avant-garde of the campaign, so the tanks would be in the forefront of the of the front. You know, they would be not backing up the artillery like it was done in World War One, but they would you know have a completely different role. And this role was to storm ahead and surprise the enemy. So this was actually 
the genius way of using tanks. And for example, the Americans have used the tanks in a similar fashion when they attacked Iraq. So this, but this was a new way of using tanks. And I studied the distribution of the methamphetamine. And I found, for example, that Rommel's tank division was using huge amounts of methamphetamine. And Rommel also was a, a methamphetamine lover. So they just, they were just, you know, high on meth basically the whole time, just storming ahead, doing things that no one had ever done on the battlefield, not waiting for other units to come and back them up and then slowly move together. They were just moving ahead, but still connected to the Air Force. So that the other very important tactical advantage the Germans had was to be able to link the Luftwaffe and the tank troops. So you had the storming tanks on the ground and the Luftwaffe in the air kind of, you know, backing them up and making sure that their path is clear. And also the Luftwaffe was using huge amounts of pavitine, so the pilots could actually be more alert in the air for more hours. So these, you know, pavitine-crazed pilots and pavitine-driven tanks on the ground made this unbeatable, you know, Wehrmacht uh, phenomenon, at least in the so-called Blitzkrieg. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— 
I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. I'm trying to get an understanding of what were the directives and understanding about how methamphetamine should be used. Because if you start using it on a routine basis or you start taking the amphetamine many hours before you're even going into combat or you start increasing doses or you're developing tolerance, you can see all the ways in which this drug can, you know, turn out where the downsides can, you know, turn against you and where all the negative consequences of amphetamine use that are widely known around the world today begin to emerge. And so, I mean, did you have a sense of German leadership trying to get more disciplined and rigorous about when and how fighter pilots, long-distance pilots, tank commanders, tank in, you know, infantry should use the drug? Or is it always just kind of given out with a kind of, you know, take two before combat type of message on it? I mean, in the beginning, the only regulation was the stimulant decree, which said take two pills, I think it was two hours before the beginning of combat, and then take like another one if you feel the need for it. I mean, it was it gave some intervals for the for the doctors to use it, and apparently these these intervals were were good because it was successful. But the more that science knew about the drug, obviously the more there was talk about side effects because we know today there are side effects. So um, this became known, but it took a while. I mean, the drug came onto the market in thirty eight. It was used massively in the French campaign in forty. And in 41, this starts popping up. Actually, already in the fall of 1940, there was this um, Leo Conti that you mentioned before, the, mm-hmm. the health führer of the Reich. He found out that it builds up tolerance and that addiction will come and that it has negative side effects, etc. So Leo Conti warned the German military, said, maybe in a blitz campaign this might work, but um, in, a, in a longer military conflict, and Germany entered a longer military conflict in the summer of 1941 when it attacked the Soviet Union, it might actually be of disadvantage because it wears people, you know, wears them out if they use too much. They need to increase the dosage. People become depressed uh, when they don't have the drug anymore. So Conti became the enemy of Pevity. He tried to stop it, and there's uh, interesting correspondence between him and the Wehrmacht's uh, Surgeon General claiming that the Wehrmacht is doing whatever the Wehrmacht wants to do uh, because Conti was a, was a minister, was a, a secretary, secretary of health basically. So he was responsible not for the army, not for the military, but for you know the normal civil German society. So the army said, whatever you you know decided, we don't we don't really care. We make our own, we make up our own mm-hmm. Rules and the the Wehrmacht was so drunk by these early victories that they thought, you know, we have such a wonderful pill at our hand. Why would we, you know, listen to some to some Secretary of Health uh, who tells right. us that maybe this is, will be dangerous? But I mean, it turns out that when, in fact, you know, Hitler decides to invade the Soviet Union in June '41 in Operation Barbarossa, that turns into a war of attrition. And that's a place where pervitin methamphetamine is actually probably going to do more harm than good, right? The attack on the Soviet Union was also planned as a speed war, as a blitzkrieg, 
um, because that was basically the only strategy that Germany had was to surprise the enemy and overrun the enemy within a very short period of time because basically Germany was economically not able to you know, beat the whole world and beat every country. It's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous idea. It only was able to do these surprise attacks and the Soviet, the attack on the Soviet Union was also a surprise attack. So Hitler basically that thought, you know, when when no one expects us to do s such a thing, we're going to do it. And hundreds of millions of pills of pavitine were dished out, and it actually helped in the beginning. I mean, the first three mm -hmm. months of the campaign, Germany was almost able to destroy the Soviet Union. They were very close to taking Moscow, but they just didn't manage to do it. And then when the Red Army was able to recuperate from the early losses red army was able to recuperate and to you know throw new battalions into the into the battles and then it became a long drawn out war and basically germany was not able would, would never have been able to sustain in that war and win that win that war and pavitin basically didn't play a role anymore I, I talked to one medical officer which i could interview for my book who was obviously an old gentleman when i met him he remembered quite well when he was in stalingrad and gave, he gave out pavitin still in stalingrad and he said to me that he knew that this would not turn around the battle or even the war but at the time you know they, the soldiers were you know hungry and exhausted from years of fighting so pavitin gave them like a little extra energy but then you know it was paid again with a higher price because after it wore off, it was even worse than before. So, Pavitin mm -hmm. in the long run didn't help the German Wehrmacht. Yeah. It probably had negative effects, but even without those negative effects, the German army would not have had a chance to achieve what the leadership wanted them to achieve. Once you get past the initial push into the Soviet Union in 41, it's hard to point to major campaigns where the use of methamphetamine made a significant difference. No, I think significance kind of decreased after 41 because then it became a long, drawn-out war and the speed really helps short-term. Mm -hmm. In the long, drawn-out war, even the alcohol is better. Like the Red Army always used vodka. You can drink vodka over years and you know, obviously you might become an alcoholic, but it's, it's not the same as becoming a, a speedhead and needing to use methamphetamine the whole time. Mm -hmm. So um, after 41, probably the methamphetamine was not decisive anymore. You know, it was interesting. I was reading, while well, after I read your book, I was reading some other articles and scanning through some other books about the use of stimulants during war. And both in your book and elsewhere, you know, you point out that after this happens, the British, you know, firstly, they do these propaganda films that the only reason the Germans beat us is because they had these, you know, hyper drugs that were helping them do what they do. But then the British start doing all their own sorts of controlled experiments, I think to an even greater degree than the German scientists had. And they're trying to figure out, is this about just reducing fatigue and exhaustion? Is it about making people smarter, faster reflexes? Is it about morale? Is it about losing fear? And you can see all these debates among these different scientists in the UK and the US. The US develops Benzedrine, another form of amphetamine, somewhat similar to the methamphetamine, to the pervitin. And they start using 
it, right? I mean, in the battle in North Africa, right? You know, uh, Rommel's gone down to North Africa, and now the British send their general Montgomery, and he orders lots of benzedrine amphetamine for his troops. He sees it as building morale and giving confidence. The U.S. starts using these. We know the Japanese were going big time to the use of these drugs as well. So they clearly, it clearly begins to play a role for all the militaries. But what, what also comes out in your book is that once you get past 42, and especially as you get towards 44 and 45, as things are increasingly turning against the Germans, against Hitler, against the Axis powers, you see people pushing not just for more pervitin, but you describe more and more using drug combinations, in particular, uh, a form of oxycodone that the Germans had created called Eucodol. Right, which had been invented, I think, back uh, around the days of World War One, and become very popular, and essentially relying increasingly on speedballs and such. So it seems that as things are getting worse and worse um, for the German army, they're relying on an ever greater array of substances to try to deal with the, the prospects of defeat. Yeah, they even came to uh, trying to develop so-called wonder drug because Hitler was always talking about wonder weapons that he had up his sleeve. And to use some of these wonder weapons, uh, new types of drugs were actually needed because one of his wonder weapons were the mini submarines, which he thought Germany would produce in mass amounts. They were manned by one or two people. And um, when Germany had lost all its big U-boats, um, these small mini submarines were still in the water, uh, trying to approach the Allied warships, and then these were like one or two person submarines with torpedoes attached, basically that were meant yeah, for right. sneaking. And then you could sneak up to a big um, ship and, and and try to torpedo it. And for these missions, uh, they were looking for a drug that would keep soldiers awake for five to seven days, which was even impossible with methamphetamine. So they tried drug combinations. They combined cocaine, methamphetamine, eucodal, the oxycodone uh, into a pill, which they called D9, drug 9. And it just shows how desperate um, the German war effort became. I mean, these uh, were essentially almost kamikaze efforts, right? I mean, you were taking teenage soldiers, filling them with some combination of cocaine, methamphetamine, and oxycodone, putting them into these little cubes where they could barely move around, and sending them on missions from which probably the majority would never return. Right? Yeah, the Germans officially never had suicide missions, but these, these missions uh, literally became suicide missions because not many of these uh, young guys ever returned. The drugs itself that they had to take was so horrendous that they were lost uh, control, they lost orientation, they didn't know anymore where they were going, and then they were just, you know, destroyed by, by Western ships. So, Nora, I want to turn now in the last part of this discussion to Adolf Hitler, and especially his relationship with a fascinating doctor named Theodore Morell, who was a specialist and dermatological and sexually transmitted diseases, a pioneer in vitamins, but also a bit of a quack. And he becomes this absolutely pivotal uh, relationship for Adolf Hitler. And I think part of what your book did was to uncover uh, evidence of the extent and depth of this relationship, both interpersonal and pharmacological, that no historian had fully appreciated before. So tell us something about that. No, you're right. Historians have never really looked at the role that Theo Morel played, even though his role is very interesting because 
Uh, my research showed that Morel spent more time with Hitler than anybody else and had quite a great influence uh, on him. They were very close, uh, they were friends, and they basically spent every day together. Um, they first met in 1936 at a spaghetti dinner in Munich where Morel was uh, invited by Hoffmann, who was the photographer of Hitler. Hoffmann had been a patient of Morel. He had uh, contracted a sexually transmitted disease and uh, Morel cured him. So Hoffmann was very happy and he said, you have to meet my friend. And his friend was Hitler. So um, Morel was sitting there at the dinner, totally nervous. And Hitler had stomach problems uh, always. He had problems with his digestion. And uh, Morel, who was um, not only into vitamins, but also into probiotics, which was kind of new or very new at the time, suggested that Hitler would take a probiotic to help him with his digestion. And Hitler did this and it actually helped him. So he thought this Morel is a, is a great doctor. Uh, he achieved what no other doctor has achieved before. And he appointed Morel as his personal physician uh, in 1936. And from that moment on, the two men became almost symbiotic, mm -hmm. say in English, maybe. Yeah, yep, same. Uh, so from 1936 to 41, Hitler followed Morel's suggestions to use a lot of vitamins and probiotics, and he was very healthy, actually, even though the mode of application was a bit strange, perhaps, because Morel believed in injecting things. Uh, he said it's much faster than uh, taking a medicine orally. Also, Hitler had this digestive problem, so also injecting was better for him. Um, mm -hmm. And Hitler became used to receiving his daily injection. Uh, and the injection had uh, usually a cocktail of vitamins and glucose and maybe some other probiotic and, and, and things that would boost Hitler's health. And this worked quite well. Until 1941, when he was in the heat of this uh, campaign against the Soviet Union. In August 1941, he became ill for the first time since Morel was his doctor. He had dysentery, which came with a high temperature and flu-type uh, symptoms. Uh, he felt very weak and he couldn't go to the military briefing. And he said to Morel, you have to give me something else because he was Hitler was very much concerned with the generals acting on their own terms if he wouldn't show up at the briefing just like they did in the French campaign when they were just storming ahead and he didn't understand anymore what was actually happening on the battlefield. So he ordered Morel to give him something stronger than just vitamins and Morel for the first time gave him an opioid. And Hitler, who had developed this taste for strong-acting injections, suddenly received an injection that was much more powerful than anything he had experienced before. And then he more and more asks Morel uh, to give him stronger stuff, stronger than just vitamins. And Morel being, I guess you could call him an opportunist. He was also very much, very much, he was scared of his patient. Uh, his patient A, he called Hitler, a, Adolf A, mm -hmm. number one patient. So he basically did was what his patient wanted. Hitler developed this term of immediate recovery. So whenever Hitler after 1941, felt a bit weak or insecure or tired, and he had to make big decisions, which he always had to make in the war. Every day he had to have make more, you know, big decisions. So he said to Morel, "I need, you know, stronger and stronger medications." And Morel 
basically delivered him these stronger medications and never tried to protect his patient from becoming addicted or you know using too many medicines it sounds like you know every day is different in terms of what morell's giving hitler right he's playing around not just with stimulants and opioids and other psychoactive uh, chemicals but he's also using steroids and hormones he's designing things he's inventing things i mean basically hitler is the guinea pig who he has to find a way to please day in day out and he gets caught almost in a catch-22 where he's giving things that are making Hitler feel better, but ultimately resulting in his long-term decline in his health. But if he says no to Hitler, it endangers his relationship, if not potentially his well-being in life. I mean, he really gets himself caught up into an impossible situation, it seems like. Yeah, it was very difficult. He also complained a lot to his wife, saying this is the most difficult patient you could imagine. And I think that's probably true. Because Hitler always thought he knows everything better. And he was kind of an amateur you know, fan of medicine. So he's very interested in different developments. And so he was encouraging Morel to develop you know, these hormonal concoctions, for example. Morel at one point had the monopoly on all the organs of all the slaughtered animals in all of the slaughterhouses of the Ukraine which was a big deal because the Ukraine is a big country and there were big modern slaughterhouses and Morel got all the glands and all the organs and the blood and everything was separated during the slaughtering process and shipped to Morel's company, which was uh, based in occupied uh, Czechoslovakia. And there he made these, um, uh, these concoctions or like a pig's liver extract and and when he made a new concoction, he first tested it on Hitler, and Hitler wanted to be the, the guinea pig. He said, yeah, test it on me. And, and even though Hitler is a vegetarian, he's taking all of these things that are coming from animal parts. Knowingly, you think, or not knowingly? Well, he, he got concerned with this fact, and he actually asked Morel, can I, can I technically still be called a vegetarian? And Morel said, yes, if you don't eat it but if uh -huh. you actually get it intravenously you were still a vegetarian <laughs> which is very uh -huh. strange you know but hitler was fine with this argument yeah. with this uh, reasoning and so um, hitler actually consumed you know very intense animal products and these animal products were not really tested on you know anyone else except him and and if he liked it then these products were legalized for the German population, also for the German army, because Hitler said, if, uh, if it's good for me, it's good for the German people. So basically bypassing any type of, bypassing any type of drug regulatory process that the German state would have had in place for the German Well, the German state population. had very strict, you know, they had very strict regulations. Yeah. So it was basically impossible after 1943 to put a new product on the market because, you know, he had to go through test phases and these test phases couldn't be set up anymore because it was a total war situation. Morel complained to Hitler. He said, I cannot put my new beautiful inventions on the market. And that's when Hitler said, okay, just we bypass that. You just give it to me. If I like it, I make a, a, a decree, a Führer decree, and then it's going to be on the market. So this was mm -hmm. totally, you know, ridiculous way to to go ahead, but that's how it went ahead, and you know, this this is how the whole dictatorship went ahead. You know, Hitler was just deciding everything, 
and obviously making many you know, bad decisions. That w- that's why Germany, you know, catastrophically lost uh, this war because it was just one man thinking. Do you describe all these instances of his, you know, telling Dr. Morell, give me something, I need something, I have a big meeting with the general staff or with my ministers or whatever, and, and you got to get me up. And then so he takes these things that make him feel kind of empowered and bold in the same way that Pervitin uh, had with the soldiers a few years ago, and obviously influencing the decision making he's doing and, and I guess creating an ever greater level of delusion about what his armed forces could achieve. Well, I spoke at length with um, Hans Mommsen, uh, who uh, was the leading historian on National Socialism, and he thought that I somehow provided an answer to what historians have labeled as the delusion of Hitler or how Hitler more and more is removed from reality. And the drugs play quite an interesting part in this because Hitler created this artificial world that was, you know, going through his blood. Uh, I mean, he was he, he he made sure that he would feel good and that he, that he would think that he's ahead of everyone and always has, you know, the right, correct decisions. But this was basically a drug delusion or a delusion in general. And he used drugs to, you know, to keep this tunnel vision and to keep this delusion. And by removing himself more and more from reality, obviously this had catastrophic effects for the German military, um, because the generals were actually quite, you know, they were very smart, they were trained, they were educated, they they wanted to discuss the situation among themselves and make suggestions how to react to the situation on the battlefield, you know, what to do. But then there was this totally crazy uh, Hitler who just said, no, 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 you don't know anything, we'll do it like this. And he was micromanaging everything and he just, he he basically uh, ran the whole thing against the wall. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot. 
The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know, you talk about that by 42, also what's happening as his decision-making declines, but he's also rarely giving those incredibly charismatic speeches he used to give in the 20s and 1930s. And that those speeches were, on the one hand, and sort of intoxicant for him. I mean, they gave him this little, I, I can relate to that as somebody who gave, you know, hundreds if not thousands of speeches. Doing that gives a kind of rush, a high, and for Hitler doing it, this extraordinary thing, there must have been that. And all of a sudden, he's more and more, you know, isolated. We sometimes talk about the role of drug set and setting in the issue of psychoactive drugs. It is not just the drug that has the impact, but it's the set and setting. And you describe him basically, you know, hunkering down in a place called the Wolf's Lair, essentially a large bunker complex, I think, in eastern Germany, more or less for three years from the summer of 41 to 44. So he's kind of isolated. He's meeting with his senior commanders, but he's not out there talking to the crowds. He's not getting that sort of feedback. Drugs are playing ever greater role. And then in his own delusion, he sort of sees himself, and this is a, your description of the book, as himself almost offering himself to the German people as their intoxicant. Don't use psychoactive drugs. I am Nazi ideology. I am the national intoxicant. I mean, what you describe is a, a man just undergoing this you know, sustained three-year and then intensifying in the last year of the war, you know, decline and ever greater delusion and generals being in fear of having to, you know, even go in and see him. And Hitler is just being delusional. Yeah, I call this the bunker mentality in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, Hitler also had uh, a love for real bunkers for concrete. So he put like seven meter thick wall, concrete walls around him. And he also put these pharmacological walls around him so no one could touch him, especially the opioid oikodal, which now is marketed as Oxycontin, became his favorite drug because once he was high on uh, oikodal, he felt invincible, he felt good, he thought he could think clearly. He basically never came back into reality at a certain point in time. He never like came down and like spoke to someone and asked him what's really going what's really happening here. He was he was never in that state of mind anymore. And, and, and this greatly differentiated um the dictatorship from for example the the, the British uh, establishment where people were or the American establishment, war establishment where people were, were rationally discussing what's the best way to go ahead. Mm -hmm. There was never this this pooling of you know different you know 
perceptions and, and, and opinions. In Germany, it was just this one man deciding everything and this one man, you know, becoming more and more uh, delusional and, and, and removed from reality. Well, it seems in a way also both Stalin and Hitler are essentially extraordinarily powerful sociopaths um, and making unilateral decisions and killing and you know, executing people and all this sort of stuff. But, but Stalin, so far as we know, was not under the influence of powerful psychoactive drugs and growing drug dependency in the way that Hitler was. I mean, you also describe in 1943, you know, he tells Mussolini to come see him. The Allies have already attacked Italy. Rome's being bombed. Mussolini comes to see Hitler. And Dr. Morell, you report in the book, has just given Hitler another injection to get him up for the meeting with Mussolini. And, and Hitler just talks nonstop for three hours, right? Mussolini, Il Duce, doesn't even get a word in edgewise and concludes with some disastrous, you know, military uh, edict. I mean, it's almost a comedy. I mean, it's a very sick and sad comedy, but parts of it almost sound that way. And Stalin, as you mentioned, never used drugs. He was always, uh, even though he was, um, you know, mass murderer, but <laughs> he was still, you know, rationally make these decisions. He would very rationally approach the military uh, theater. So he would let his generals do their job, basically, while Hitler mm -hmm. would. He was not able to let anyone, you know, take any responsibility and make any big decision. That's why many generals especially became more and more frustrated with Hitler and didn't want to go into the briefings anymore because they knew that they couldn't even, they couldn't speak their mind. Mm -hmm. You know, you also talk about all of the people in Hitler's retinue turning to Dr. Morell for their own medication. An industrialist, senior, you know, Nazi officials, senior military officials, uh, even ambassadors. Some of them actually go to Morell, you describe, saying, I got a meeting with Hitler coming up. Give me something to steal me for the meeting that's coming up. Um, and then, of course, Goring who was the second most powerful person in the Third Reich, right? The, the head of the war economy, the head of the Luftwaffe, Hitler's designated number two. He'd been a morphine addict for decades, which had not kept him from becoming enormously successful for a long time. But it sounds like in the last years of the war, he kind of falls apart as well. Yeah, I mean, this is not just a phenomenon of, of Hitler becoming uh, removed from reality. I think the generals of the Wehrmacht were still very rationally operating individuals, but the higher echelon of the Nazi party was quite mad, actually. I mean, if you look at these types of personalities, characters that were in the highest power places, Göring, Goebbels, Himmler, Bormann, they were very strange uh, people. And, 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 and I mean, the pressure also around them was, was incredible. And uh, they were using quite a lot of drugs, all of them except Himmler. Uh, Himmler was doing two hours of yoga each morning in his office, but the other ones were basically also living in the make-believe world. Um, Goebbels was using uh, heroin and morphine. Göring was a morphine addict. Yeah, at one point it became almost essential to become a patient of morale if you wanted to stay close to Hitler, because if you would not become a patient of morale, Hitler would already see this as you might even be an enemy because you're not, you know, doing the same thing that that, that he would do. You don't, you wouldn't trust um, the doctor that he trusted. So it became also very political what morale did, and mm -hmm. um, he became extremely busy actually as um, 
as the doctor of, of, of most of the higher Nazis. Right. But then there's this final chapter, right? July 20th, 1944, is the failed assassination attempt by Klaus von Stauffenberg and his um, allies, uh, where they land up getting a bomb into a meeting with Hitler, who is severely wounded, um, and others, other senior staff are killed. Um, but Hitler survives. And a new doctor, I don't know his name, Giesing, Geising, Giesing, who's an ENT, an ear, nose, and throes doctor, comes into the scene. And he's somebody, I mean, it's common in those days to use cocaine. Uh, you know, he was not unique in using cocaine for dealing with ear, nose, and throat troubles. It was a very common form of medication in those days and quite effective for most people. Um, but a kind of battle breaks out between Giesing and Morell over who is going to be Hitler's doctor. Well, when Giesing applied cocaine uh, to his Hitler's nostrils, uh, he realized quickly that Hitler appreciated the drug, not like a normal patient who would maybe say, oh, I'm happy I don't have such pain anymore, but Hitler immediately wanted more. And he was actually craving for the psychoactive effect of the drug. And Giesing realized this. Um, and he realized more and more, you know, he realized that Hitler is is like a drug connoisseur and he, he likes to take drugs every day and then Giesing became skeptical Morel uh, because Morel would never really say what he gave Hitler so there was no open communication between the doctors so Giesing became very suspicious about Morel's behavior and was uh, and actually went to Himmler said maybe it's not good what what uh, Morel is doing and uh, at the time, Hitler had become so inefficient as a war leader that um, there were, you know, hopes within the high, the highest echelon of the party to remove Hitler and have a new leader. So they, Himmler, who was part of that group for a while, you know, thought if we remove Morel, then we cut off Hitler from his drug supply, and that would weaken Hitler, and we can actually get rid of Hitler and and and. and start a new phase of the dictatorship um so there was uh, actually a so-called i call it the doctor's war between giesing and morel but in the end hitler won the doctor's war and fired giesing and because he was still you know the leader all the others um, basically uh, uh, went quiet and uh, morel's reign um continued and at this point, I mean, Morel is giving Hitler everything in the kitchen sink, right? I mean, steroids and this. He's ultimately, I guess, giving speedballs that are combining cocaine or amphetamine with eucodol, the oxycodone, or maybe even barbiturates. I mean, Hitler's in a place where these the stuff that Morel is giving him is, on the one hand, more and more accelerating his death, yet on the other hand, giving him these little bursts of energy so that he can still attempt to perform. We described Norman also is that in these last years, basically Morel becomes Hitler's most frequent companion, somebody he describes as his best friend. And Morel essentially becomes a de facto prisoner of Hitler, basically forbidden to go away, to leave, to see his family, to anything so that he can be available 24-7. And it's kind of this little dance of decline while Morel's giving Hitler the drugs to sustain his megalomania and avoid accepting the realities of the of what's happening on the battlefield all around him. Um, absolutely. I mean, Morel tried to remove himself at a certain point in time, even from his duties, and wanted his 
assistant doctor from his old Berlin practice to come and take over the job. But Hitler uh, just uh, wouldn't let that happen because he said, I'm not sure if your assistant can give injections like you can because Morel was supposed, you know, he was known to give the painless injection, which was not so easy at the time with the thick needles they had back then. Um, so Morel was had no idea how to ever get out of his job again, and he actually stayed with Hitler um, almost until the very end. Mm -hmm. You describe Hitler just looking totally broken, like his veins shot track marks on his arm, and you make the point that the attempted assassin, Stolfenberg, you say Stolfenberg hadn't killed him, but he had indirectly turned him into a drug addict. So it might be possible to say that Hitler was not truly a addicted to drugs until just a few years before his death at the end of April 1945. But by the end, he was essentially a hopeless polysubstance addict. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at what happened in the bunker in the last months of Hitler's reign when Hitler's health was so destroyed by all these drugs that he became more and more incapable of you know, making the decisions that had to be made because this was the end phase of the war and Hitler became more and more this drooling wreck um, who was just craving for the next fix. And then Morella, at a certain point in time, decided not to give him the drug anymore, especially the Oikodal. Suddenly he stopped giving Oikodal, even though he had given it on regular, in, a, in a regular rhythm before. So it's interesting to speculate because Morel didn't write down why he didn't give the opioid anymore, why Morel did that. So either Morel didn't have the drug anymore or he decided that he has to save Hitler from, from, uh, from his addiction by putting him cold turkey. But it certainly turned Hitler into you know, even more of a wreck because suddenly he didn't have the drug anymore and he couldn't function anymore whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I guess in those last days of his life, he lashes out at Morel and fires him. And Morel's even afraid he's going to have him executed, since Hitler's having lots of other people executed at that point. Yeah, he fires him uh, in late April 1945. Goebbels had told him that Morel had basically made him addicted to opioids, which Hitler must have known himself, because Hitler, as crazy as he was and as evil as he was, he, he still must have noticed um, that he developed a dependency on his doctor. But I think he suppressed this knowledge. And then Goebbels basically laid it out before him. He said, you have become addicted to opioids and this is Morel's fault and, and that's why you are in such a bad shape right now. So Hitler actually says these words to Morel, you have been giving me opioids the whole time, get out of the bunker, I don't ever want to see you again. And Morel's totally crushed, and he thinks now that uh, the Nazis will hunt him down, make him responsible for destroying Hitler, which in a way he did. I mean, he really, he really contributed uh, without wanting to do that, but he contributed a big, you know, part of Hitler's, you know, decline. And so Morel flees to the south of Bavaria, where he has a small research lab, and just kind of waits, you know, for the SS killing squad to knock on his door and, and, and put a bullet in his head. But this never happens. Germany loses the war. And then in mid-May 1945, uh, Morel, still in the southern Bavarian village, is tracked down by U.S. military and uh, interrogated and then investigated for possible war crimes. 
which then he he was not because um, the Americans found out that what what did Morel do? He basically poisoned Hitler. He didn't commit any war crimes. Uh, the only crime, in a way, that he committed was you know, give drugs to Hitler, which is not a which was not a crime in a way. It was um, a certain you know very interesting behavior, which explains you know some things about um, Hitler's rise and especially about Hitler's fall. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let's just conclude then with a, a, a few reflections on this. And, you know, before I do, I should just, you know, reveal to you and the audience, you know, my own sort of personal connection to all of this, which was that, you know, I come from a, a Jewish family. My dad was born in Berlin in 1928 and grew up there with his family until they were able to flee in 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II. And so he was five when Hitler came to power. His father, uh, the one I'm named after, Eric Nadelmann, you know, had fought for Germany in the First World War, had received the Iron Cross, and then in 1940 was living in France. My, my grandparents had gotten divorced and is picked up, sent to the French you know, detention camps, Drancy and others, and then ultimately sent to Auschwitz where he's killed. So, you know, for me, there's a kind of personal connection to this. And lastly, when people ask me why I devoted my life to, you know, working to end the drug war in the U.S. and around the world, I mean, what I say is that it was my consciousness of the persecution of the Jews and of the nature of Jewish history, and especially the Holocaust, you know, that sensitized me to things that resembled that sort of behavior in contemporary society. The war on drugs, although it did not approach the magnitude or evil of the Holocaust or some of the other greatest, you know, genocides that we know in history, that in fact, in many ways, it did resemble those sorts of horrific campaigns that dehumanized people for one reason or another, and that employed in mass incarceration and massive police forces and all of this sort of stuff. So I'm just sharing that with you and with the audience. Um, but it's it's why reading uh, your book was a you know a somewhat emotional engagement for, for me as well. And the but for question with Hitler: If Hitler had never met Dr. Morell, would he have been a healthier person in 1945? Would he have made it through to 41 in the way he did, for which he gave Morell credit? I think I cannot imagine Hitler ever uh, not having a tunnel vision and being a very closed-minded racist person completely convinced of his own right-wing right populist ideas so morale was in a way perfect for him i mean without morale maybe he would have crashed before I don't think he would ever have become more flexible in his thinking and in his decision-making. That's why maybe the argument that Morel ultimately destroyed Hitler is not really correct because Hitler ultimately destroyed himself mm-hmm. and Morel just gave him the tools to actually be you know, quite active for a long time. I mean, he, the really bloody years of the war were 1944 and 1945 when so many people died unnecessary deaths and this was due to hitler's you know stamina in a way even after the you know, the bomb attack against him he was in july 20 1944 he was still going for almost another year i would say morale's medication actually did not you know help the world but actually helped hitler to keep running for quite a long time and commit uh 
incredible atrocity. So, uh, Norman, before we conclude, um, so what are you working on these days? Well, I got very interested in uh, trying to find out how you know drugs uh, have an influence on you know history and historical processes, and then I um, looked at uh, a certain drug that was uh, developed or found um, in 1943, which was LSD, and I decided to look at the very early years of LSD to figure out you know how it was developed, why it was not why it did not become a normal medicine and what actually went wrong with LSD and how can LSD um, maybe be used uh, nowadays. So this is, uh, this is the, a new book. It's basically, basically a book about America uh-huh. and how American history uh, was um, shaped by this uh, incredibly potent substance that suddenly was available. Oh, Norman, that sounds fascinating. I mean, obviously, there's a whole post-World War II history of the CIA and others with their MK Ultra, you know, investigations yeah. and giving LSD and other types of psychedelics to all sorts of people to see what types of possible uses they could have in interrogating prisoners or motivating soldiers and all this sort of stuff. So I very much look forward to that book. And I just want to thank you ever so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Sure. Thank you. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, we'll be talking about all things ayahuasca with one of the world's leading experts, Brazilian anthropologist, Dr. Bia Labate. I got really yeah, dedicated and I just wanted to drink it and talk about it and think about it and talk to people and Naturally, I became an anthropologist studying ayahuasca because I was so interested. And I just decided that I wanted to go to the Amazon and visit the sources and go directly to the fields. And for me, it has been like my main ally and friend. But I think that's, you know, we have to be careful with those kinds of things because there isn't such a thing. You know, this is the one or the best. I mean, this is the one for me, or this is the one that now serves me better. And this is a friend, this is an ally, this is a teacher, this is a kindred spirit that I am aligned with. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.